First Peter chapter 5, would you please read the, uh, this wonderful portion as we are coming to the end of the letter. First Peter chapter 5, verse 12. It is bittersweet. I've enjoyed this letter. Sometimes I used to say to myself, wow, there's a lot of messages on one letter. But then I find solace in the fact that I know of one man who spoke in the book of Job for 37 years. And at the end of that time, preaching the gospel, by the way, through every verse of Job. And at the end of that time, he said, I still don't know the book of Job. So, what 60 messages compared to that? Let's read together 1 Peter 5.12. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Amen. Father, thank you for this word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Please be seated. Most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with the concept of counterfeit, counterfeit currency. I'm not sure if you've ever had a $20 bill that was authentic to you, but it wasn't. <laughs> and the bank teller told you this is a fake $20 bill. At one time, uh, counterfeit money was an easy endeavor or an easier uh, with the current banknote and because of the latest technology and so forth. Uh, counterfeiting has become a challenge for counterfeiters, but it's still very much in existence. However, counterfeit is not only limited to currency. There's counterfeit art, uh, counterfeit cheese. I'm not sure if you've ever gone to Berkici, there's a big sign telling you to buy the authentic Parmigiano cheese. Uh, counterfeit wines, right? Counterfeit cigars counterfeit olive oil. Yes, what many of you buy as olive oil is not genuine. Counterfeit Louis Vuitton bags. Counterfeit Versace sunglasses. Counterfeit jewels. And the list goes on and on and on. There's an estimated $300 billion of fake goods that are passed off as authentic. This sort of activity is very ubiquitous. And when we become the object of a scam, we get upset. We're very upset. None of us wants to be the victim of a scam. But I wonder if, as Christians, we are as careful when it comes to spiritual counterfeit. This is the one counterfeit we must be, must be, very careful about. We must not overlook it because it's pervasive and it's devastating. And so I'm asking the Lord for grace for myself and for us as a church so we can sharpen our spiritual senses so that we can spot um, phony Christianity with surgical precision. Now, lest some of you think this is only for a few of us, for example, not only, if I would have a $20 bill in my hand, I could not tell if it's phony or not, right? Most of us, I don't think, can. Very few can have that kind of discernment. 
But thankfully for the church, this is not a gift for the few. It's not a gift only for uh, the elders or just some spiritual leaders that have been in the faith for a long time. No, this is really a gift that any, every one of us can exercise. And that's why there's the church. That's a wonderful thing. And if we don't do it, who will? We cannot be laissez-faire with spiritual counterfeit. The health of the church, the salvation of souls, depends upon our resolve to expose spiritual counterfeit. It's hard work, it really is. And uh, sometimes unpleasant, but it's necessary. Recently, my wife and I viewed a series. I fell asleep in some parts because I usually fall asleep when I watch TV. We don't watch much of it. But it was on Mark Hoffman. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that man. Fascinating story. It was a docu-series, uh, they call it. And um, this man was part of the Mormon church, and he made a name for himself by collecting or discovering where and finding where these documents uh, by the founder of the Mormon church, like Joseph Smith, and then later on, letters by George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And everybody believed these documents were original. Even the experts, after doing all kinds of forensic testing, they would always come up with their verdict, authentic, authentic. He made millions. Until because of one mistake, I'm not going to go into it, it was uncovered that he was forging all these documents. They say that right now his documents are still in circulation and they cannot even be detected as such. That's how perfect his forgeries were. He had devised this elaborate system whereby he was able to create perfect forgery, if there is such a thing. He was a genius. By the way, he's still in prison. Look him up. Mark Hoffman. We have an enemy who's far, more, far greater than Mark Hoffman. He is the master counterfeiter. And he doesn't counterfeit for unbelievers. Unbelievers are dead in their sin. Unbelievers are not into what we appreciate, faith, grace, the gospel, the Bible, God's word. This master counterfeiter is unmatched. Paul writes about him in this way in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Angel of light, that's an interesting name. By the way, that's where the name Lucifer comes from. Lucifer is not originally in Scripture. Satan masquerades himself as a counterfeiter, or as an angel of light, because rather he is a counterfeiter. Satan will never disclose his intentions, never disclose his true colors. And, of course, he's not alone in this. He has messengers, for it says again in 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen. therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So we have servants of righteousness who are not, who are counterfeiters in the church who 
are there to peddle a false gospel. And we need to be discerning. When I see Christians on Facebook, and I don't have Facebook, but my wife will show me sometimes on Facebook, and we're quoting different authors. Please don't quote anybody. Just quote God's word. At least you know. It's inspired. Just quote God's word. And Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland and all these, they're, don't do that. Don't do that. Please, with all my heart, I'm saying this. So we need to be aware of the enemy's work of forgery. We need to spot it. We need to know who's peddling it so that we do not fall into error. And warning his disciples, Jesus said these words. He said to them, watch out, in Matthew 16, by the way, verse 6, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees were very esteemed by the disciples. They really appreciated these men who had sacrificed much and had separated themselves from everyone and dedicated themselves to the study of God's word. But Jesus says what they're teaching is leaven. It puffs you up. It has nothing to do with the truth. But they were unable to discern it. Jesus discerned it, but the disciples, and they weren't dummies, they had to be warned by Jesus himself. And they couldn't understand, by the way, if you keep reading the passage, for lack of time, I encourage you to do that, they didn't understand what Jesus said by these words. And the Lord told them later on, it's their teaching, it's leaven, it's not according to truth. From this passage that we read in Peter, I want you to notice the three areas where the Christian faith is different. It's unique. And consequently, it's what the enemy seeks to imitate. And he counterfeits in these three areas, primarily. He replicates. And I, and I base myself on that expression that Peter uses, the true grace of God. By saying the true, he's saying there's something out there that's not true. Right? When Jesus said, I'm the true vine... Well, for the Jew, who's the true vine? Israel is the vine. You're a Jew, you're part of the vine. Well, Jesus said, no, I'm the true vine. So whenever you, you see the word true, it's always in contrast with something that is not true. So when Peter uses the word, this is the true grace of God, he is contrasting with something that is not true. And we can see from his words here what where um, Christianity is authentic, all right? It's characterized by this. First, authentic esteem, authentic esteem. Please underline that. How do we see that? Look at the first part of verse 12. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. And the words of Peter are very revealing here. As he comes to the end of his letter, Peter mentions Silvanus. In all likelihood, Silvanus here is the same individual that we read about in Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 16, by the way, and in other letters, even of Paul. Uh, some of you will remember the disagreement, the sharp disagreement that Paul and Barnabas had over one young man called Mark, John Mark, the same who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And 
Paul said, we're not bringing him for our next mission trip. Barnabas said, yes, we are, and they had a disagreement. And finally, the brethren intervened and said, listen, <laughs> the world is big. There are a lot of lost people. You take one, Mark, Barnabas, and you take someone else. And Paul took Silas. And so the scholars believe that the Silas of Acts 15 is the same Silvanus of 1 Peter chapter 5, same one. And um, Silvanus is the, by the way, Silvanus means of the forest, which for those of you who don't know is also my surname, de la foresta, right? Of the forest. Silvanus. Silas is the Greek rendition and Silvanus is the Romanized one. But that's not the important part. What I want to draw your attention to is what Peter says about Silvanus. He calls him a faithful brother. It is interesting that Peter should say this about Silvanus. Why do you ask? Well, he mentions him right at the end of the letter. Do you know why? Because Silvanus was the scribe. <laughs> he was writing. Peter was dictating. Peter was the one saying what the Holy Spirit was putting into his heart. And therefore, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the letter. But really, it was Silvanus who actually held the pen. Now, scribes were not uncommon in those days. Scribes were like, you could say like a computer is today, right? Now, if I write a letter, I won't say, by the way, I'm using a PC to write this. Nobody does that. You send out your email and, right? And maybe Andrew would say he's using a Mac. But most of us don't. We don't mention what we're using, right? So in those days, when you hired a scribe, or if someone volunteered his services as a scribe, because they were, they were very costly, right? Scribes were very costly. They were like a Mac today, for example, right? So you, you, you couldn't find scribes everywhere. Most people did not have the skill to write on parchment or in Pergamon. So whenever you found someone, you, had, you would use him, but you would not necessarily, in fact, no one would, you just don't mention his name. You're my pen, just write. You're nothing. I need you, but I'm not going to highlight you. I'm not going to mention you. But Peter doesn't do that. Peter calls him a faithful brother. For so I regard him. Is that something? He does more than just simply mention him. He, you know, he, does, so he does more than just simply thanking him. Right? He puts the spotlight on him. He actually takes the spotlight and he doesn't say, I am the apostle, and, you know, I am telling you that this is the word of God, and you better listen. No, it doesn't do that. He goes, my faithful brother, Silvanus. They would have never known that Silvanus was writing that letter. They would have never known that Silvanus was behind the scenes and just making sure. You can imagine Silvanus says, do you actually want me to write my name? Yes, I want you to write your name. How wonderful. Why did he do this? Well, I think Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 tells us why. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. That's what Peter did. Now, that's not the Peter that we see in the, in the Gospels. The Peter in the Gospel is rash. The Peter in the Gospel says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm a super disciple. I walked on water. Remember that, Jesus? These guys didn't. These guys were in the boat. I'm different. 
And of course, he was humiliated with his own denial three times. But it's not the same Peter. It's not the same Peter. I love how Romans 12 says it. This is Paul speaking to the Roman Christians in Romans 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted. I love that expression. And then it says this. And I'm, I'm reading from the Berean Study Bible version, okay? Outdo yourselves, how? In honoring one another. So imagine if we would actually practice that. If I would actually make it a point, I'm going to outdo myself in honoring my brothers and my sisters. Imagine doing that in our homes. I'm going to honor my wife. I'm going to honor my husband. I'm going to honor my children. I'm going to honor those around me. I'm going to intentionally make it a point to highlight others. Wow, that was so revolutionary. (laughs) It didn't make any sense. Because in our DNA... We want to be in the spotlight. Have you ever watched a soccer game? Have you ever watched when Ronaldo scores or anybody? I mean, I, Ronaldo was pretty much there or, or Messi or whatever, you know. They're there just, you know, that, what do they do? You know, <laughs> or it's me. I'm the one, right? That's soccer. It's, uh, everybody's waiting for that moment to be in the limelight. In Christianity, it's, it's others, pointing to others. So beautiful. Drawing attention to ourselves is natural. Giving the spotlight to others is the essence of genuine Christianity. And I'm not talking about flattery. With flattery, is oh, you praise someone because you want something from them. That's flattery. But genuine praise. We see Jesus doing this over and over. Remember what he said to the Syrophoenician woman? When she said, just give me a crumb from the table. That's enough. And Jesus turned to her and goes, great is your faith. He never said that to Peter. You know that? He said, oh, why? Oh, you have little faith. <laughs> great is your faith. This was a woman who had never perhaps read scriptures. In all likelihood. Never had gone to the temple. Was not part of the Jewish nation. Great is your faith. What did he say to the centurion? When he said, just come. Uh, just say the word rather. Don't come under my roof. My servant is sick. Say the word. And what did Jesus say? I've never seen such faith in all of Israel. This guy wasn't perfect. This guy didn't have it all together. But there's Jesus just praising, commending. And this is the Son of God. How much more when we do it. How, how much glory it brings to God. Paul, look at Paul. You know, many people say Paul was sexist. Right? They, they say this and because they read, wives submit to your husbands. And, or they will read, uh, misread 1 Corinthians 14 which says, woman, be silent in the church. And, and they misread all those texts. Or it says that the woman should not exercise authority in, in the church and so forth. And, and, and they say Paul is sexist. But then how do you explain Romans 16 when he mentions 10 women highlighting them and praising God for them? How do you explain when he says that Uriah and Syntyche and Philippians and the letter to the Philippians were my fellow workers? How do you explain Paul's appreciation of women when in those days just mentioning the name of a woman was suicide? You couldn't do it because women were not considered equal to men. They had no voice. You don't mention a woman in your writing. 
Paul did this over and over. You see, that's when we misread Scripture, when we interpret it incorrectly. Paul appreciated those who were not regularly esteemed. This is what the church is all about. It's not a one-man show. How many times have you heard, I go to that church because the band, oh, the band, that's a band. That band, they have composed wonderful songs that are now sung all over the world. (laughs) Or you should see the building, or you should hear the pastor. The pastor is just remarkable. I just go there for the message, and it's just wonderful to hear. That's not church. It's not church. It's not a one-man show. Church is the body of Christ who give value one to another. That's what it is. It's giving value to each other. It's esteeming each other. It's putting the spotlight on those who don't get the spotlight. Those who are doing the work behind the scenes and don't get acknowledged. And that's what the early church did, by the way. Counterfeit Christianity is about superstars. It's about the gifted. It's about the great band, the, the gifted pastor, the wonderful building, the program they have, and all this kind of stuff. But we find none of this in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it was the least of these who were given value. There's no place in the church for the personality cult. You turn on your TV on some church, and it's about the gifted pastor, the gifted speaker, or their beautiful building, or whatever else. But that is not what the church is. The church is the place or the people that values the others. In the early church, you had the poor, the elderly, the sick, the women, the children, the slaves, who meant nothing to Rome. Nothing. You're insignificant. I don't need you. What did the church do? You're invaluable. You're important. Children, you're important. Women, you're important. Elderly, you're important. Sick, you're important. The crippled, you're important. That's how the church thrived. Rome today is no more because they were after power, glitz, glory, and gore. But not the church. When the least of these are ignored or in any way overlooked by the larger group, then you have a monstrosity. You have worldliness. That is not the church of Jesus Christ. It's a counterfeit and nothing more. So let's, like Peter, esteem one another. Take the brother who's least appreciated, the sister that is unknown, is quietly serving, and praise her. Praise him. Acknowledge their service. Send a card. Call them. Whatever. Let's do that. Let's outdo each other in honor. That's the first thing that we see. The authentic church is characterized by genuine or authentic esteem, one for another. Secondly, genuine Christianity is um, characterized by authentic oneness. Authentic oneness. Look what Peter says afterwards. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying. I've written to you briefly. By the way, the letter of Hebrews says that too. That's not a a brief letter compared to Peter. Peter is brief. 
I've written to you briefly, exhorting. There are many that feel that um, their faith is a private matter. You may have heard that expression, and there may be some here who say that. Say, my faith is between me and God. I don't think most of us say that, but there are those that have said that. And what I believe is between me and God, and, and, uh, and it's nobody's business. I've heard that many times. But is faith really a private matter? It's a personal matter, for sure, because it impacts us personally, but it's not a private matter. Because what you believe in impacts and has a direct impact on the way you behave. You would never say that about something you are passionate about, something that you care about deeply. For example, if you care about your children, you're constantly going to speak about your children. Constantly. There's people who care about food, and they're constantly talking about food. On Facebook and on Twitter and everything is food, 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 food. Sports, 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 sports. Everything. But when it comes to our faith, it's hush, quiet. That makes no sense. Right? Whatever you're passionate about, you will not keep it to yourself. You will never let people tell you it's between you and God. That's it. It's your faith. Don't talk about it. When someone is regenerated and brought to newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel has gripped his heart, he has been transformed, he, she will speak about Christ. He will, she will. And as a result, genuine believers will engage with fellow believers of like faith, of like mind. Because they will desire to pray, they'll desire to fellowship, they'll desire to grow together with those who believe in the gospel. It's called fellowship. In Peter's words, we see his bond with these believers. We're not sure if Peter had ever met them. But you cannot escape the love Peter has for them. You can't. He has a bond with these believers who perhaps he's never met. How do we see that? Notice his words, exhorting and testifying. In other words, Peter had a specific goal in writing his letter. It was not simply, I, wanted, I just want you to feel good. I just, I just want you to be happy. You know, like the song says, be happy, be happy, just be happy. Peter didn't write so they could be happy. Peter was interested in truth. And Peter was going to give them the truth. And he was exhorting and testifying. He had a specific goal. Behind his words, we see a Peter who desires to pour into these suffering Christians. And they were suffering. So Peter, because he was suffering himself, pens these words with the help of Sylvanus, of course, and writes to these suffering Christians in Asia Minor. He was not interested in keeping a safe distance from them. This was hard work for Peter. This required time. This required sacrifice. And when these Christians received this letter, they realized Peter had put effort into this. Because writing a letter was very difficult in those days. Why did he do it? Because he loved them. And he cared for them. He took the time needed to exhort. Exhort. What is exhortation? Exhortation is the glue of a united church. United in spirit. You have no exhortation. You have a superficial oneness. What is exhortation? It's what I do every week. Every week I teach and I exhort. I teach and exhort. 
It's what I do on the phone. It's what I do with my texts. It's what I do on Wednesdays. I teach, exhort. I teach, exhort. And we are to do it not only once in a while. We're to do this regularly. If we're interested in someone, we're going to spend energy exhorting. If we don't love someone, we're not going to exhort. Why do parents exhort their kids? As they love them. And they pour into them. Notice Paul's words, for example, when writing to the Romans, Christians he had never met. In Romans 12:1, therefore I urge you. What is he saying? I exhort. I'm urging. I am pleading, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Notice again to the Corinthians, when Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no division among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Scriptures are full of exhortation. Now, there are historical books, there are narratives, the Psalms are not necessarily an exhortation, but you can draw an exhortation from them, but they're full of exhortations. And Peter is doing something that the Spirit of God is prompting him to do. He is exhorting the suffering Christians. And Paul, as we saw from Romans and Corinthians, does the same. Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 3. Is this reserved only for the apostles or pastors? Only for them and no one else? No. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another every day. Now, you cannot be, listen to this, you cannot be in a gathering every day, right? But you can be exhorting every day. You can be. And it's such a wonderful thing when we pour into each other. You know, I have no idea how many times I receive a text from some brother or some sister, and it, it's just an exhortation. Sometimes lengthy texts. They're just exhorting me. They're encouraging me. It's a wonderful thing to do. If we do it one for another, it will strengthen our unity. There is no unity without exhortation. There is no unity. Just coming to church on Sunday and not engaged in exhortation and encouraging others and receiving exhortation, we become weak. We become weak. This is how we get nourished. This is how we get enriched. Me giving you on Sunday, yes, or on Wednesday, or whenever I meet people, or whenever I talk, yes, but then we do it one with another. In the Western church, there's sadly this mindset that we go to church on Sunday, worship God, and then we go home and carry on with our lives. And we're disengaged from each other. We, we try not to meddle, because the enemy has put this kind of thinking in our minds, just as long as you go to church, don't worry, just go to church and just, that's it, just... You don't have to be engaged with others. You don't have to be. That's a counterfeit church, if we believe in that. At LCF, we don't, thankfully. But not all of us are on board with this gift of exhortation. Some of us are quiet. We feel we don't have nothing to say. Just spend time in the Word. Just spend time in prayer. You're going to have a lot to say. You're going to have a lot to encourage when you do that. Your church... 
excelled in reciprocal exhortation. They were nothing like the church of today. Just read the New Testament. You see that over and over. Christians exhorting. Now, I understand some of you may are, feel reluctant. You say, look, I don't know if I can do this because I don't want to make a mistake. There are churches where the pastor, whatever he says, that's it. We all follow what he says, and every one of us just stays quiet. But that's not church. That's just not church. Again, that's not what the New Testament church looks like. And you say, I, I don't want to hurt someone. Or I don't want to make a mistake. Brother, it's better to make a mistake and just be open to correction. But let's encourage. Let's exhort. I'm saying this to those of you who are not. Those of you who are, keep doing it. You're a blessing. You're a blessing to your fellow brother, to your fellow sisters. It's wonderful. Don't, let's not be content with simply listening to a message and then keeping a safe distance from others. That is a counterfeit Christianity. It's not what the early church was about. It's not what we want to be about. You know, the thing of being safe, just coming to church. I was hurt there, so I'm going to come here. I'll just listen to the message, and then I'll just go home. That's not what the Lord desires from his people. You know, imagine you're being part of a family. You've been hurt by someone. And just stay quiet. Quiet at the table, quiet. Just You're passing by each other like two ships in the middle of the night. Right? And you don't talk to each other. That, what kind of a church is that? What kind of a family is that? If we're not intentionally exhorting and encouraging one another, then unity is not there. We're a bunch of marbles. I spoke about this a while back. We're a bunch of marbles together that can easily fall apart and break. Now, let's not be happy with simply saying, I attend LCF and that's enough. I attend LCF and I bring my tithe. Let's encourage, exhort one another. Let's take Peter's example, who paid a sacrifice to exhort these suffering Christians. Let's not be mute, ineffective, and then end up as a shallow church. That's the work of the enemy. And many churches in the Western world are like, exactly like that. That's counterfeit. That's not the real thing. Remember, the enemy is not interested in counterfeiting for the unbelievers. He is interested in counterfeiting for the believers. And he will push, he'll peddle this concept of church. And he'll make us believe it, and then we'll just fall for it, and we're just going to be interest, happy with being detached from each other. Not ministering one to another, not serving, not encouraging, not exhorting one another. So, the church is characterized by authentic esteem, one for another. So I regard him. And the church is characterized by authentic oneness through exhortation. Exhortation that is based on the word of God. And thirdly, the church or Christianity, genuine Christianity, is characterized by authentic grace. So therefore, Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And so here we see Peter once again mentioning this word grace. He does so in chapter 4, verse 10. He does it again in chapter 5, verse 10. We spoke about it last week, the God of all grace. And now he puts an adjective, the word true, to the word grace. And why true, as I said earlier on, it's because there is fake grace. Fake grace. And, and if you look at the letter to the Galatians, we have an example of a church that embraced 
fake grace, a pseudo-Christianity, a pseudo-gospel. We read about it in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, when Paul says this, I am amazed. That's, <laughs> this is the first time you see Paul amazed, by the way. I'm surprised. I'm shocked. You know, why? That you are so quickly deserting him, meaning Christ, who called you by the grace of Christ. You're deserting the Lord for a different gospel, which is not just another account, but there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, he goes, right, meaning him himself and the others who worked with him, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, he is to be accursed. Wow. So the church of Christ in Galatia fell for a pseudo-gospel. That's how good the enemy is. That's how good his servants are. His servants of unri- of, who claim to be servants of righteousness, but they're simply uh, masquerading. Notice that the believers of Galatia had been called by the grace of God, or the grace of Christ rather, and had fallen from grace and made room for a pseudo-gospel. And what was the pseudo-gospel? Oh, simply, these Judaizers who believed in the law of Moses and also believed that Jesus was, yes, the Messiah. He came and he died, yes. But we need to observe circumcision because the law of Moses speaks about that. We need to eat kosher food. So certain meals need to be avoided. We need to hold on to certain holidays. These are important holidays that are mentioned in the Old Testament and so forth. And so we need to do this with this and we marry these two and we need to follow both. Well, Paul says, they fell for that. They fell for a pseudo-gospel and therefore they fell from grace and they thought they were pleasing God. They were doing this in all sincerity. See, many times you hear, you know, as long as you're sincere, no, it's not enough. We can be sincerely wrong. And these Christians of Galatia were sincerely wrong. And they, were, they thought, wow, we have it. Paul is saying what you have is fake. It's a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit. When I was in Rome, uh, there was this American pastor who came visiting. This was in the 80s. And... Um, he, made, he said, I'm going to go downtown. I'm going to buy something for my wife. He came back and he had bought Versace sunglasses at a fraction of the cost. I think it was, he had paid $100. That's a lot of money in those days. And they typically went for $400. So that's, that's a significant savings, right? And he was so proud of his purchase. And uh, he said, my wife is going to freak out when I tell her I bought these in Rome and, and these are the original Versace glasses. And so a friend of mine who was there, one of the fellow students said, do you mind me taking a look? So, of course. And, you know, he handles this case. The case looks so expensive. He opens the case. He hands over the glasses. And my friend looks at them, weighs them, and looks like, this is a knockoff. You can imagine how the guy felt. <laughs> you know. We don't like it when we've been scammed. Oh, Peter is saying, I don't want you to be scammed. I want you to understand, this is the true grace of God. That's why throughout the letter, he's been addressing different points, right? I mean, we can't go through the, the entire series, but let me just highlight a few points, right? He addresses, for example, the wrong belief that anyone is automatically part of the church as long as you attend. 
No, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has what? Has caused us to be born again. You're part of the church when you're born again. You are born into the family of God. That's a spiritual activity. That's a a divine act. That's God doing something in us, and he causes us this new birth to take place. He tackles, for example, the false belief that sin is not really a big deal. You can be a Christian and sin. Well, in chapter 117, he says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. He's saying there's judgment. There's judgment. Or he addresses the false teaching that if you are a suffering Christian, there's something wrong with you. I've heard this said many times. I've known people who suffered tremendously as Christians. And they were made to feel, well, there's something wrong with you, sister. You haven't got enough faith or, you know, there's, you don't, you're not gripping Christ as you should be. Otherwise, the Lord would be moving powerfully in your life. And so he addresses that by saying in chapter 2, verse 20, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, but if when you do what is right and you suffer for it, you impatiently endure it, this finds favor with God. If you're suffering as you obey God, that's a wonderful thing. The Spirit of Christ and of glory rests on you. He addresses the false idea that because believers are free, they don't have to submit. We're free. No, freedom is really pirated today. It's a big topic. Submission, well, that falls by the wayside. Don't talk about submission. But Scripture speaks a lot about submission. Peter says, submit yourselves, in chapter 2, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to a king as the one in authority, to the governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Submission. Or, for example, he addresses the false belief that there is no final judgment by writing, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, throughout the entire text, uh, letter, what is he doing? He's taking captive every thought that was randomly present in the minds of Christians. He takes one and he brings it to the obedience of Christ. He takes another and he brings it to the obedience of That's what the letter does. That's what God's word does. That's why you always need to compare. What I believe isn't according to Scripture. And we need the Bible, we need the Holy Spirit for that, and we need the church. Throughout his letter, he's been doing exactly that. So what he's saying is, if you believe something different than what I've said throughout this letter, you are embracing a fake grace. You're not standing on, on the grace of God. It's, it's a pseudo-grace. How easy, how easy is it to fall for the phony, for the counterfeit? Well, well, rather easy. Just like this pastor who was in Rome. He, had, he was convinced. You know, he, when he went to downtown, he went to a shop and bought that pair of Versace sunglasses. He was convinced it was the authentic thing. So it's very easy. Look at the Galatians. They easily fell for fake grace. We may think that I'm okay. <laughs> I attend church. <laughs> I read the Bible. 
But we need to make sure that we're not falling for the counterfeit. So we need to ask ourselves certain questions. For example, do I esteem others more than myself? Am I intentional about that? Or do I want the spotlight on myself? Do I want to be noticed <laughs> more than others? Well, if I want to be noticed, there's something I've got to correct. I have to humble myself for the Lord and ask the Lord to give me grace so I could esteem others and not be quick to criticize because everyone has shortcomings. But we need to address the shortcomings if they are devastating or if they impair our growth. But most importantly, we need to esteem, esteem. That's the first thing. Secondly, do I strive for the unity of the Spirit through heartfelt exhortation? Or do I say, you know what, I'm coming, I go to church, I sit down, I listen to the message, it's a wonderful message, I'm just going to go home and that's it. I, what, what others want to do, let them do it. That's counterfeit Christianity. We can't do that. We need to care about each other. And that care needs to not more than say, hey, I care about you, I love you, I love you, I love, I love you. It's exhortation. Now, I know people that just hug each other and just going around hug. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy. He lives, I think, in California. He's known as the hugging professor. And he walks through campus. I don't know if he does it now, but he used to. And he just hugs anybody. And he makes them feel like a million bucks. Imagine Peter doing that, going around, I'm going to hug everybody. Let's just hug. Let's just. <laughs> That's not it. It's exhortation. I need the word that comes into my life spoken by you. You need it spoken by me. Each one of us. That's why there are home groups. That's why there are prayer meetings. That's why we need to simply call each other, text each other, be concerned with each other, and we do that. There's a whole bunch here doing that, but there's a fraction that still has to get on board with that, and I'm, I'm exhorting you <laughs> to do this for the sake of of your growth and for the sake of the name of Christ. And then lastly, do I bring what I believe under the magnifying glass of Scripture? Peter says, I've written that this is the true grace of God. In other words, I want you to read it over and over. This is your measuring tape. I told you about the story when I was in the, uh, I went with a couple of people, friends of mine who were hunters, and um, I wasn't a hunter, I still am not a hunter, but they gave me a compass. That was my noble job. And they, on an ATV, they drove me all the way, I don't know where, how far, kilometers, and they dropped me off there, and they gave me a stick and a compass and said, just go east. And, and please, don't trust your senses. Look at the compass. So I looked at my compass. I looked at a, you know, I made an imaginary point and a reference point, and I just put my compass away, and I walked, and then I picked it up. I was going west. I was going north. I was going all kinds of directions. I wasn't going east. And this is what God's word does. It brings us back to the reference point. We need it. And without it, we're going to go in all kinds of directions, like the Galatians. So Peter concludes this section with these words. Stand firm. So we need to stand firm on these areas that the church is characterized by. All right? We want to take what Peter is telling us, esteem one for another, exhorting one another, and then listening to God's word, reading God's word, and measuring what we know with the, according to the light of God's word. We want to be a church where God's word is taken seriously, where sin is taken seriously, where fellowship is taken seriously, where the least of these are esteemed, where a suffering saint 
is welcomed and doesn't feel out of place. Where someone who has less doesn't feel he doesn't or she doesn't belong. Where the gospel is clearly taught. Where prayer is on the forefront. Where training is carried out diligently. Where evangelism is encouraged. Where sound doctrine is taught. Where gifts are recognized. All of this is possible because of God's grace. Because of God's grace. Be steadfast. Stand firm. I thank God for the church of LCF. When I read read this verse, I just had a joy in my heart because this is the track we're on. This is what we're doing and only because God has given us the grace to do it. None of us can take the credit. None. Nobody. We give him all the glory. He's doing this in our midst and I am so happy to be a part of this body. I really am. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that reminds us what characterizes a church, the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you for telling us that over and over throughout the word of God. Thank you for this wonderful compass, this wonderful living word that is sharper than any sword. And it pierces right to the very marrow of our being. And we are, the thoughts of our hearts are exposed and we are corrected and we are encouraged, we're challenged, we're cleansed by it. Thank you for this eager people of God that attend here and that are part of this church. And they're just not happy to be attenders, but they are actively involved in encouraging one another. You're doing this, Lord, because after all, the church of Jesus Christ has a head and that's you, Lord. You keep it alive. You make it thrive. You're the one doing it. And I praise you that we're part of this body for the work you're doing in our midst. We're far from where we ought to be, but we are on the right path because you're doing the work. And I thank you for every member here, every brother, every sister, everyone who loves the body, who encourages the body. And those who are weak and discouraged and perhaps don't have, Lord, that needed motivation to encourage, but they need help. I pray that we could spot them, esteem as we ought to esteem them, and then encourage them so they in turn can encourage others. May we become that kind of a church more and more. May we be a church that loves sound doctrine, so that we'll never be duped by fake grace. Strengthen us, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. May we be sharp at exposing, detecting, and exposing fake Christianity on an individual basis and as a church. Give grace to all of us to do this. For your name's sake, I pray. Amen. Amen.